Welcome to Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. Each week, we will be diving in to talk about a specific ingredient for the kitchen for the professional chef and home cook. We'll also be talking to the suppliers, producers, our vendor community about all the ingredients that they offer and how they bring them to chef's kitchens. At the Chef's Warehouse, we have a uh, you know, really great role in, in the food cycle for restaurants. And you know we're, we are importing and distributing products from all around the world, as well as the United States. And it's really exciting when we get to uh, see a new item that you know either we're thinking about carrying or something that uh, we already distribute to restaurants. Yeah, and I think that when we get those ingredients in, you can already start to think of different chefs that would want to purchase those ingredients, chefs that are kind of doing interesting things for the industry. Someone that comes to mind is the chef that we're going to be talking to today, Hallie Meyer. Yeah. She is kind of a badass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She is super passionate. She's got this great gelateria ice cream shop Mm -hmm. and cafe. Cafe Pana. In New York City. And she's just super passionate. Uh, I can't wait to to really speak with her and talk about, you know, the adventure that she's had. She opened up uh, pre-pandemic and, you know, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. She does these pop-ups called Trattoria Pana. And I went with her sales rep, Jen Gordon. Uh, we tried to go. We show up. There's a line wrapped around the block. People had said they had already been waiting for 30 minutes. For ice cream. For no, she does these pasta pop-ups. Ah. You know, savory side. Wow. What could be better than a place that serves ice cream and pasta during a pop-up? I know. And affogatos. Oh. You like affogatos? I love affogatos. What exactly is an affogato? An affogato is a scoop of gelato or ice cream, whatever, however you want to call it, and you pour a shot of espresso on top. So good. It's amazing. And then I said to Jen, you know what? I know we can't get in to get the pasta, but we should have her on the podcast. Yeah, she's she's really a, a special person. Her family, which well, she's gone out on her own and done her own thing, but she does come from you know one of the royal families of the restaurant world. Her father, Danny Meyer, founder of Union Square Hospitality Group and Shake Shack. She's got a lot of amazing stories, I'm sure, to tell about growing up in, in that environment. Absolutely. Talking about ice cream, though, John, what are your childhood memories or what do you think of when I say ice cream? Two things come to mind. The first is Baskin Robbins, because where I grew up in Larchmont, New York, Mm -hmm. in Westchester, about 30 minutes north of New York City, the predominant ice cream of my young childhood was Baskin Robbins. They had a corner place there. Have you ever had Baskin Robbins? Of course. The 31 flavors. Yeah. Do you know what my favorite of the 31 flavors was? What is it? It was the bubblegum one. Bubblegum. I know. It's, oh, it's today so it sounds like an impossibility that yeah. that would be something anybody should be eating because do you remember this flavor? You would literally scoop it. It was like a pink color. I was say it's pink. But then it had little bits of bubblegum in it. So as a kid, you know, you're getting the pleasure of the ice cream, but then you also get this little extra like gift at the end where you could chew gum for another 30 minutes. <laughs> or 30 seconds. You know, whatever. <laughs> But that was when I was a young tyke. Yeah. When I was a kid, we would go to the Poconos. My my grandparents had a house there. And my grandmother, Millie, was obsessed with ice cream. We used to go to this little, it was an orange and yellow custard stand called The Junction. Uh, well, she called it custard. What we would call it would be soft serve, you know, just vanilla custard with either rainbow or chocolate sprinkles. When I think of ice cream, I think of going to The Junction with my grandmother. Yeah. Well, and then you said soft serve, which is the two magic words because Carvel, mm-hmm. which yeah. if you don't know what Carvel is, if you live somewhere where there's not a Carvel, is Carvel just in the East Coast? It's not. I actually Googled it. It's in 24 states. Well, there you have it. So when you grow up in the New York area, Carvel is kind of this delicious ice cream, soft serve. I'm not sure exactly what's in there besides cream and milk and sugar. sugar. I'm sure there's a lot of other things in there. But I will tell you, it's delicious. Now, do you remember the first time you had gelato in Italy? I do remember the first time. I was on the Manicoretti trip, and we were in the town of Penne. Like the pasta? Like the pasta. Yeah. And I remember we went to this little gelato shop. I don't even remember the name, I'm going to be honest. And it was so good. I mean, it was in the colorful cup. You know, you... 
or whatever, but they didn't offer me. I know some gelaterias, they offer panna on top. Yeah. Do they always? They probably do. You're Italian. You know, you're a little rusty. Maybe you didn't hear it. Maybe I didn't hear it. I don't know. But I just remember, and I always get either hazelnut or pistachio. Yeah. Those are my flavors. And it was so creamy, so decadent in a way that I, I don't think soft serve is. There's something about what they're doing in Italy when they make gelato that is unlike anywhere else's ice cream in the world. It's amazing. There's a place in Parma called La Gelateria. Mm -hmm. To me, that's some of the best on the planet. And for sure, I was looking at pictures earlier, you get it with the panna. Because they don't charge extra for it in Italy. No. You just get it. They put it right on top if you wanted a big dollop of heavy cream or whipped cream. It's hard to say there's anything better in, yeah. in the world. This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Hey Now Media. So I'd love to welcome Hallie Meyer into the studio. Great Thank to have you. you here today. So fun to be here. In this Great to meet you. Beautiful yeah. space. When we asked you to be on the podcast, we said, what do you want to talk about? And the first thing you said, you wanted to talk about the Pana. Yes. So tell us a little bit about the Pana. Andrew, what is Pana? Yeah, what, I mean, well, Pana is cream, or but in, it's Italian cream. Uh, Andrew, you're time. doing my job. This is like the question <laughs> we get. 10 times a day, every day at the store. So um, tell us a little bit about what you're using and what makes it special. Totally. So that's definitely like how I would answer it. You know, if mm -hmm. someone comes up to the store and they're like, what's Pana? And the way that I answer and, you know, my team answers is, well, it's the Italian word for cream. We import our cream from Italy and then we whip it fresh here with a little bit of sugar and we offer it complimentary on top of all the ice cream scoops. Yeah, Pana is just that. It's cream. But the kind that we use is from this brand called Pana Elena. I feel like I'm kind of like sharing a secret right now because I don't think I've actually really talked about the <laughs> Pana Elena uh, specifically. I have so many questions at the tip of my tongue right now. Right. One is, I'm going to ask a bunch in, in, in rapid fire. Mm -hmm. Why is ice cream in Italy so much better than it is anywhere else in the world? And then also, what is it about Italian cream that is so good that you're importing it? Because there's good cream in the United yeah, there's States. There's fantastic dairies in New York. What for it, but, sure. Yeah. But so, what is it about Italy? So I'm going to answer your second question first because it's way less heated for me, um, which was, you know, why are you importing Pana and why aren't you just using fat and kill cream or something? Right. And the answer is because I just wanted to have the best tasting whipped cream ever. Um, and that this exact Pana is actually my favorite of all the Panas that I tried when I was living in Rome and working in a kitchen there. What makes and it different? I think that, you know, we could we could say like the actual quantitative things that are different about it, but it's more just like how it tastes. It tastes different. If you did a side-by-side -side of this Pana and you know, a really great cream, it would taste different. Yeah. The things that are different on paper about it, it's 40% at least fat. There are still some creams here uh, in the U.S. that are at least 40% fat, maybe higher. It's made from cows in Piemonte. Who knows if that changes anything? The other thing is that it's actually ultra high temperature pasteurized and it's shipped over and given to us in these, you know, boxes. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to a grocery store in Europe and you see like these boxes of milk and you're like, like wait. the Parmalat kind of box. Exactly. Yeah. Wait, shouldn't that be in the fridge? No, because it's ultra high temperature pasteurized, which refers to the process where it's like really, really high temperature cooked mm. for a short amount of time. So it helps with shelf life. It helps with shelf life. Um, yes. But what it may do to flavor uh, is like kind of intensify the dairy flavor, like really make it give a little like cooked milk flavor almost. I think when you try our Pana, you'll taste more cream than you would uh, another cream. That said, love all whipped cream, love Ready Whip. I mean, you know, <laughs> maybe there's not so much cream in Ready Whip, but... It has its place. Yeah, exactly. What I loved about gelato in Italy and that whole culture is that Pana is offered to you like uh, milk at a coffee shop is here. It's like, oh, do you take Pana with that? Right. It's free. It's just a thing. It's not like whipped cream is here necessarily. It's not right. like it's only for a Sunday. It could be for like a little scoop, which is what we do at the store. That's so nice. It's always on my scoop in Italy. I, you know, it brings up another thing that I always think about, and I've had this conversation many times, is do things in Italy taste better than they do here? 
I think they do, but I've had you know a few chef friends tell me, you know what? No, it's just you're you know you're in Italy. It's more romantic, whatever. It's nostalgia. What do you think? I think I mean I think that's a really good question. I think sometimes they they do, and who knows why? But I would definitely agree that I've had the experience where a slice of tomato with olive oil on it just tastes better. Yeah. Whether that's because the olive oil is closer to where it grew and came from and the right. tomato is closer to where it grew and came from. But I do think that when you can get those really good ingredients here in the States, which like, you know, we're lucky we can. We taste a bunch of olive oils. We find the one that we love. It's called Piano Grillo. We offer that on top of the ice cream scoops too. That olive oil on top of vanilla ice cream versus like random olive oil, like it pops in a way that's like totally different. What are the flavor um, attributes of that oil that make it pop? It's definitely uh, spicy. So that's really cool mm -hmm. with like the creamy ice cream. Yep. And it's also kind of like grassy and green. I mean, olive oils are fun too because yeah. like there's a smell that we all kind of like know. They all kind of have their different. I, I think for me, olive oil is easier to, to taste the differences than like red wine even. I haven't quite like become an expert at that yet. I, I don't know if that's ever going to be me. I'll stick to like ice cream and olive oil. But I feel like with olive oil, like there's a little bit more like distinctness sure. among all the different flavors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What other savory things will you put on top of your ice cream? Oh, we do a lot of fun savory stuff. I like to throw in like at least one savory Sunday per week. Right now we're we're only open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and that's just due to our production capacity right now. We do a different Sunday each one of those days, and sometimes it's an affogato Sunday, so it's, you know, a Sunday that includes a shot of espresso poured over top. Sometimes it's kind of a more like just ice cream. Last week's savory was a corn cacio special. So it was like sweet corn ice cream. Mm. We did a black pepper crouton. So just like a lot of butter oh, with wow. uh, with sourdough from our neighbors at Daily Provisions and a lot of black pepper. And that's kind of like the crunch component. And then shaved uh, pecorino romano fulvi, I think from Chef's Warehouse. Yeah. Some basil and the piano grillo. All that savory stuff is almost like easier to taste with a little backdrop yeah. of like the, the sweet ice cream. So fun stuff like that. You know what the craziest thing I ever had on ice cream? I was in Japan and I was visiting a wasabi farm. Mm. And the guy, the wasabi farmer, I thought it was crazy before I tasted it, but he had a soft serve ice cream machine in his little shop where he literally had a farm where he brought in the fresh wasabi. And it's intensely hot. Obviously, you know, you get that like nasal thing when you have wasabi. Right. He grated a ton of it and put it on top of the soft serve. And it was really wild. And it really let you enjoy the wasabi flavor. But the coolness and the creaminess of the totally. ice cream kind of dissipated a lot of the heat and the intensity, that kind of mustard intensity. Totally. And I thought it was crazy. I feel like ice cream like evokes a lot of memories for people. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. How did you get into yeah. ice cream to begin <laughs> with? Yeah. I, I mean, I think I've always loved ice cream just like anyone uh, has. I also always knew that I wanted to have my own place of some kind. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a family that where, you know, owning a restaurant was like, like a, a thing to do. And when I was in college, actually, I worked at the local ice cream shop um, with a friend of mine. Just had a really great time, um, you know, on Saturday nights instead of going to the club that was right next door to the ice cream shop we were scooping ice cream and our friends were like give us ice cream <laughs> uh and then from there i kind of got into like trying every ice cream that was available in any place that i was and even started an instagram to document all of that uh, with another friend of mine which is you know now archived but i think it still exists it's called two girls two cones and so in in doing that i was like you know at the same time kind of thinking about flavors that I wanted to make. And um, then I worked in some uh, some savory kitchens, one in Italy and Rome, which like really was the place that inspired me most, the gelato cafe culture there. Came back to the States and kind of had crystallized really what I wanted Cafe Pana to be. Took it from there. Found that, that Irving place space that was once the sushi spot that we talked about. <laughs> So you grew up in a restaurant family. Your dad's a super famous restaurateur. Did you were you in those restaurant kitchens as a kid? Were you hanging out by pastry chefs? I, Was Claudia Fleming like in your world? I love Claudia Fleming. I, I love her work. I don't think I was hanging out so much. I wasn't that cool. I definitely had a birthday cake or two that she made. That was amazing. Yeah. But I, I would say like the impact that growing up in my family had on me was 
really more, and I, I do credit my mom with this as well, just, you know, normalizing following what you want to do. We're privileged enough to be able to follow our dreams in this life, and so we should do that. It was not a shock or a uh, disappointment, or it really was just a, a nothing that, oh, yeah, you want to do your own thing and open your own place. So Grateful you followed your passion. Time. Yeah, definitely and it went did. to you went So you went to school at Yale. You worked at an ice cream shop in New Haven. Yeah. You ate pizza while you were there? Definitely ate some pizza. And what was the favorite parties. pizza of New Haven? Sue Parties. West Haven. West Haven. I'm yeah. sorry. See, I'm not a Connecticut person. No, I just so. think it's funny because everyone credits New Haven with the, with all the... Because of uh, salads Frank. and peppies. Yeah, yeah. peppies. Yeah. There's a lot of peppies. Peppies is though. everywhere now, though. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a huge peppies fan. I'm going to say it. I'm putting it out there. It just it wasn't my favorite pizza. No problem. That's fair. That's fine. But come on, it's pizza. Don't be ashamed. I mean, oh. I would crush it right now if yeah. it's in front of me. Absolutely. <laughs> you know what it is? And we were just talking about this. So I am another, I'm, I'm admitting something. I do not like pecorino cheese. Whoa. I know. Wow. Why? Salt? It's the sheep, like sheep's milk cheeses. Oh, like, I love that. I just like goat right. and sheep. I can't. And he wow. finishes all his pies. So I'm eating it and I want to love it. Yeah. Because I know it's good. But I'm like, I want to see, I wonder if you'd like it on ice cream. Because like having the sugariness right. changes things a lot. I'm going to have to come and try she, it. Well, and she, yet, yeah. having anything on ice cream, you taste the thing itself more. So, I don't know. She confessed to I me would, earlier that she doesn't really like cacio e pepe, which kind of broke my heart a because little Because of the pecorino. But wow. if you, if like making it, I mean, and you can't really make it with parm if it's true cacio e pepe, yeah. but. How about mac and cheese? Just love. Like mac, okay, great. That's good. I crave mac and cheese. Okay, you can, you can stay at the table. Have uh, you ever done a mac and cheese ice cream? No, I, I think the closest thing we've done is just, you know, cheese Cheese flavors. in the... So we like, you know, we've definitely done, we did a Rogue River uh, ice cream. Nice. Ooh. Like a beet caramel. Yeah. And we, we do a lot of cheese ice creams. Mm -hmm. um, actually, the pasta pop-ups themselves where, you know, we have a set menu. We do a pasta. We usually do two veggie sides. Um, and it's crazy. It's like two hot plates and a lot of people thinking that we're a restaurant, which is why they're really fun. But we'll have, you know, a lot of like pecorino rinds left over after mm -hmm. that night. Great. Put them straight in the cambro. Put our cream base on top of it. Let them soak overnight. Mm -hmm. Get a little of that flavor and then spin an ice cream based on that. And it's different because when you soak the, you know, when you're infusing the, the cream base, mm -hmm. you don't get as like much intensity as if you like just threw pecorino like more like the it. essence of it is there but not like exactly smacky in the face exactly yeah. we were talking about cereal earlier too so cereal is the same way like you could just like throw cereal into the ice cream or you can like soak it and then strain it and so you're not left with any of the texture mm -hmm. or like as much of the strong strong flavor mm -hmm. but yeah so that's how you do all the bases fun. yeah yeah that's cool when you're in italy and you go to get a gelato do you have is there something that you use as like the standard kind of you're testing out a place, you want to see if it's good? Is there one or two flavors that are your go-to? That's a great question. And I, I might have answered it differently before I had an ice cream shop because I have to say it does bother me when people come and they're like, well, I want to try your vanilla because that's what I'm going to judge you on. And I'm like, okay, like help yourself. You judge yeah. me on whatever you want to judge right. on. But, you know, hopefully like the place you're going has and and probably have like put a lot of thought into all the flavors that they're offering. Right. So whatever it is that looks good is definitely what I'm going for. But I usually love to do like a vanilla or fiori latte with a fruit sorbet with panna. You can taste the fruit the most. You can taste the base and the panna, of course. What about you, Andrea? I always try the nocciolara mm -hmm. and the pistachio. Pistachio is like a lot of people use that as their standard. Because mm. I think there's a lot of like crappy pistachio out there. And I think when you taste one that's really good, there's nothing better. With Sicilian pistachios. Yeah. yeah. I'm a you. coffee, and sometimes I do strawberry, mm. but always oh. coffee. Your strawberry right here is amazing. Is, is that the red flag? I mean, we have done, you know, like a strawberry. I should have brought you that one. We did a flavor last week called Strawberryist. So it was like market strawberries cooked down till they're like really jammy, then blended into the base. So the base is pink like strawberry mm. plus a strawberry swirl. But red flag is the one we have year round. It's a sweet cream base strawberry swirl and graham crunch which is one of our nice house made signature toppings that we go through just like crazy amounts of everyone loves it buttery sugary a little bit salty Yum. graham cracker topping where's the best gelato in italy oh is that possible John, to answer that's that so hard i think a better question because i if you can't tell i'm really reluctant to say the best this or the best that yeah, that's okay but where would i go i'd go to rome yeah um and i'd go to i go to three places 
because there are so many different takes on all these like classic dishes and gelato is one of them. So Odaleg, which is a place that I had the fortune of being able to work for uh, for a month or so before opening Cafe Pana. Marco, the owner there, he is taking a very um, modern, fresh approach on like the traditional gelateria. So he changes his flavors daily. That very much inspired me. He makes what he's serving for, you know, the next 48 hours, which also inspired, you know, what we do. And he does things that are like a little out of the box. He won't necessarily stick to the Italian canon of nocciola, pistachio, fior di latte, all the ones you always see. Sure, he'll have them, but he'll say, well, here's another pistachio with uh, Turkish pistachios. So you can taste the difference. Or here's a carrot sorbet because that's what was in the market today. So that's not necessarily traditional. So I would go there and then I'd go to Giuliti, which very different than Marco, a little bit corporatized now, but the experience of going into that big, huge, grand cafe bar setting with all the colorful flavors out there that really don't change with the seasons. They're just, you know, doing the same things all the time. Huge swipe of Pana on top. And then probably this is the one that might shock you. I would go to Grom, which is amazing in Italy, also a global chain, but they closed in New York. I don't did. know why they did. It's a tough. If I had to guess, yeah. I'd say like Bleecker Street rent. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, the, the product is great. And the reason I'd go there is because of the Pana, which is Pana Elena. And when I went there, like that was the place I would go, honestly, every single day. Even if I was trying other gelaterias, I always knew I could go to Grom, get the chocolate sorbet with Pana on top, and it would be the best Pana experience. They used Pana Elena, uh, which is how I found it. I just like hounded them for, please tell me where to get this Pana. So th those would be the three. What about your, like, getting back a little bit to the cream and, and the pan, I guess, for your ice cream base, what are you using? So we do sometimes actually put uh, pana in the ice cream base. And so any ice cream base is made of, you know, a combination of cream, milk, and sugars and different milk solids. Milk solids you can get from milk and cream, but also often you're adding actual milk solids. So that's like dehydrated from... Like um, a milk powder? Yes, mm -hmm. or or sort of a milk powder with a different solids percentage. Ice cream is all about like fat, sugar, and solids. In the States, you have to actually use a pasteurized ice cream base in order to make and sell ice cream. This may or may not, it's a gray area, apply to restaurants that are, you know, making their own ice cream. They can usually get away with, I'm going to just do my milk cream this because the batches are so small. For us, it's like relatively big scale. So it's more so regulated. It is, yeah. So I, I knew that I wanted to create my own base that would work with all my flavors that was customized. Also, I could not have a pasteurizer in my small New York City space. There are uh, ice cream companies in New York that have huge spaces and pasteurize their own mix. But I also decided that I wanted to have someone else pasteurize it so that I could just like focus on the flavors. So I started creating different bases or, you know, trying out different bases with different uh, percentages of those those elements, fat, sugar, and solids, with uh, a company in Georgia called High Road Craft. They actually have their own ice cream line as well, but they have, you know, a bunch of pasteurizers in uh, in a kitchen there. They'll kind of customize things. Have a so chocolate you can tell and them, like, white. I want this much milk, this much sugar, this much solids. My, like, magic number happens to be 14% butterfat. On the higher side for what uh, is marketed usually as gelato, on kind of the medium side for, like, high premium ice cream, Haagen-Dazs and Ben and & Jerry's can get up to, like, 17 and 18%. Some people are actually surprised to hear that it's that low at Cafe Pana, but it, it works because... I really want the flavors to also come through. So like if you're doing a pistachio, you need to have a little wiggle room for the fat percentage to go up um, so that the texture can remain the same. So 14 is like a good uh, a good number. And then also if we want to increase our fat percentage with some flavors, we do add some of the Pana Elena. So you really taste the dairy. Like in our Fiordi Pana, it's literally just Pana ice cream. That might be my favorite flavor Yum. recently. Is that the difference between American ice cream and gelato? Is it that fat content or is it a temperature that it's served at? That's a great question. And both of those things play into it. Look, gelato <laughs> is the Italian word for ice cream. Yeah. Right. The difference between gelato and ice cream is mostly qualitative. I'm so sorry if this offends anyone, but <laughs> there are uh, I'll tell you a little bit about ice cream in the U.S. There is actually a legal definition. So ice cream has to be at least 10 percent butterfat. And it has to weigh 4.5 pounds per gallon. So in order to have the word ice cream on your product, it has to meet those two specifications. So if you've ever been to a grocery store and you see, you know, Breyers is like frozen dairy dessert. 
it's lower fat percentage. Um, pumped with air. Right. So lower fat usually means higher air. Air is not specified except for, you know, indirectly in that weight requirement, 4.5 pounds per gallon. So those are the two ice cream requirements. That doesn't mean that something that meets those requirements couldn't be marketed as gelato, right? Mm-hmm. There's plenty of products on the market that, hey, I'm gelato. Yeah. And you also check those two boxes. Let's just like get rid of the semantics. I call it ice cream because we're in the U.S. My customers sometimes come up and say, oh, like, what are the gelati today? And I'm like, I just, whatever, <laughs> you know, that's great. You, whatever you want to call it. It's a frozen, delicious dessert. So in, in Italy, though, like we can... I think all agree that you go to a gelateria in Rome and like there are some marked differences in like what the product looks like, feels like, tastes like than a traditional ice cream shop in the States. So in Rome or in Italy, you would see that things were served at like a little bit of a higher temperature that results in kind of that creamier texture. Uh, So higher temperature tends to on average be a lower butterfat percentage. That's kind of allowed for because of that higher temperature. And then you also would see like more fruit flavors than you would in the States. That was, and that was kind of one of the things that I really like wanted to, to bring to Cafe Pana. And I did also like that it was served a little bit warmer. We, we do that, you know, you won't really see like hard pack scoops coming from the shop. And then I also loved about gelato is that it was usually like made very close to when it was served. So, traditional hard pack ice cream in the States goes through like a hardening phase. We don't really do that. We, we make the ice cream, we get it to the temperature we want to serve it at, and then we serve it. Of course, doing pints is totally different, which is now something that we're, we're doing. I like all these different things from ice cream and gelato. Uh, let's bring them all together. One of the things about ice cream in the States that, you know, I really love and I think our customers love is there's no rules on what you can put in it. It's not like, oh, we only have pistachio and hazelnut. No, we can put cookie dough in our hazelnut. Like, we can do mix-ins. We can do swirls. So that's, like, a very American thing. And you don't see that in a lot of Italian gelaterias. What do you think that they would think of Cafe Pana? <laughs> that was what I was going to ask. <laughs> if you had some traditional Italians yeah. come into... I'm sure you do have Italian yeah. customers. Are they traditionalists that say, oh, no, 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 I can't have anything but This is my, a travesty to gelato. My fragola or... and my chocolati. Yeah. The funny thing is, I think the Italians are like, like any Italian customers are like, oh, this is great. Like you're doing something different with the affogato. The people who are like, you know, strict and closed minded are usually Americans that are like, well, this isn't gelato. And I'm like, no, it's not really like, (laughs) you know, so it's funny how we all like have our narratives about what's what. But I think that's part of the fun of taking something that is like a baseline, beautiful tradition like the affogato and then saying, let's add a twist to it. There's no rules. I get it. I get your passion for whipped cream. Yeah. But do you think people know, like, I don't think I would know, like, if someone said, would you like panna, like some panna, I would be like, what? Mm-hmm. So I think unless you understand it, then you're like, no, probably. Yeah. yeah. It, so it's it's really funny because the, like, our regulars are, like, they know their way around the menu. And so what we do is, like, panna, crunch, and drizzle is free. So you could get a scoop for $5.99, which is basic price in New York for premium ice cream. And you can literally turn it into a sundae for free. And most people know that by now, but the people who don't will see other people and they're like, wait, what? what?" And I'm like, well, (laughs) so Pana is like a part of that. And I don't, I think you're right that when you ask, would you like Pana? And they're like, what's that? Oh, it's Italian whipped cream. They're still thinking ready whip because that's the reference point. So they're not, they're not quite sure yet, but, um, I think it's, I think Pana is starting to, starting to spread at least on our small corner in Gramercy. John, I think we need to go. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So Cafe Pana opened in September 2019. Yep. And then obviously we all know what happened in 2020. You opened at the tail end of, of the last year pre-COVID. What, what was the COVID experience like for you? Well, you were just I getting think, your legs yeah. under you. Definitely. You know, I think we're super lucky. Um, I was super lucky that the business itself and like the product was um, resilient to something like COVID. Obviously, many, many restaurants were very hurt by it. But I think something like ice cream or pizza, anything that's really conducive to a takeout model um, had a better chance. And so what I decided to do, um, you know, obviously after 
closing for a couple weeks there just to kind of say, okay, what's going on? I kind of shifted the whole thing to a takeout window, which you mentioned Carvel earlier. Have you ever seen a Carvel that isn't a takeout window, right? I mean, that's really what ice cream shops are. And it's like a very natural progression into, you know, a little bit more of a age appropriate uh, model for us. So we're lucky that we have this corner. I turned, you know, one of the sides into the order window, the other side into the pickup window. You know, since COVID and since changing that model, we're still doing scoops. We're still doing Sundays, affogados, but a big part of our uh, revenue right now is pints. And that definitely was not something that I was anticipating when I opened Cafe Pana. It's not an Italian thing to do. It's not traditional at all. There's not a lot of, you know, ice cream to go home. It's 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 right now experience. So we're doing both now. We've never been making and selling more ice cream than than we are right now. So that indoor cafe space, which is beautiful, is going to be transformed into more kitchen space for us um, in the next couple months. Awesome. Yeah. So we're just kind of leaning into what the time asked of us. <laughs> Do you have aspirations? I know you're very passionate about pasta too from our conversations. Do you ever see yourself getting into the world of pasta? I would love to open a, a trattoria pana. You know, that's the name of the pop-up that, that we've been doing at Cafe Pana. Both ice cream and pasta, they, they share many things. But one of the things is that they're these blank canvases where you can have a technique down and make a lot of different fun flavors that keep people on their toes and are also just like really accessible. Delicious. Awesome. They both make people happy. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's almost like the holy trinity if you add pizza in there for me. It's like pizza, pasta, pasta and ice cream. Yep. I don't know how I don't weigh 300 pounds at this point. I don't think I'll ever get into pizza, though. That takes some serious patience. That's a whole other... The dough? Wow. Respect to all those people. I have a a last question for you. How do you feel about anchovies? Oh, God. I love anchovies. If you ask anyone on my team, like, what is Hallie's favorite ingredient, they will say anchovies because I think anchovies have made it into all of the trattoria upon us. I also keep anchovies for myself in our staff fridge to just quickly snack on when I need to. Anchovy and also ice cream? Ricotta. I don't think I'll ever do that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. It has the salt, but it's the 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 brininess mm-hmm. with ice cream. I'm not I don't know about that combo. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. I had to ask them. Yeah, of course. Of course. Thanks so much for being here. This has been a great talk. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a lot a of fun. Yeah. Go to Cafe Pana on Irving Place. And 19th Street. Yeah, that's right. This episode is sponsored by Five Acre Farms. We're going to be speaking with the CEO of Five Acre Farms Dairy, Dan Horan, great partner of Chef's Warehouse. And it's really important to have great dairy uh, when you're making ice cream. So, Andrea, today we have Dan Horan from Five Acre Farms on the line. Uh, He's joining us from, are you in upstate New York? Uh, at this moment, I'm in Brooklyn, but I will be later tonight. Uh, you're in the big city. But Five yeah. Acre Farms is based up in New York? It's based in Brooklyn, although we work with farms throughout the New England, New York, and Pennsylvania region. Awesome. John, this is some of the best dairy that we sell in the Chef's Warehouse Northeast. They're working with specific farms, local farms. Um, I'm a huge fan of their buttermilk, which I would love Dan to tell us more about. But can you tell us a little bit about what makes Five Acres so special? I started the business about 12 years ago. I've been in food and farming for the last, gosh, starting to be almost 35 years. Looking around, I noticed that there was a real lack of consistent quality in the mainstream market, certainly quality available in small niche market. Yet I knew that there was a lot of good supply around that that hasn't been reaching the market. I started working with Chef's Warehouse and a number of other distributors. And essentially what we do is we locate the best farms in the region and help them bring their products to market under the Five Acre Farms name although we specifically put the farm on each label. So when you when you get your Five Acre Farms buttermilk or Five Acre Farms heavy cream or Five Acre Farms milk, it doesn't generally say who it's from. It says specifically who the dairy is. That's what we do. We do that with dairy and eggs and apple cider. You know, having a real understanding about how do you make great milk, how do you make great cream is, is really what we do. That's very cool. And I, I didn't realize each of the farm's names was on the package. So yeah, on the back, like a, it'll say like uh, produced by Battenkill Farms. Got it. So it's almost exactly. like a cooperative 
that is finding the best, you know, artisan products in New York. Yeah, and then making them uh, broadly accessible. That's sort of the other key, because particularly a place like New York, I mean, you can really find anything here, but number one, making it not just for the top 1%, so being broadly available, and number two, consistently making that uh, product available is really the main ad that Five Acre Farms bring because the logistics coming off of farms into a big market like Chef's Warehouse, where being able to operate in their warehouse, make sure you meet their their order minimums, make sure you meet their their quality standards on a consistent basis. That's sort of the the secret sauce. And happily, we have a bunch of farms that are interested in being part of that. And then also making sure that this is a sustainable effort, meaning that they're paid properly. Uh, that that they're because in in the Northeast in particular, we're seeing a real uh, it's a it's a complete disappearance of farms and sadly the almost the entire reason has to be that has to, is, is is boiled down to they're just not paid what it costs to farm so that's what we do and 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 luckily there's some good farms out there well that's awesome uh you know we love the fact that it's there's a great social cause here as well so a lot of our listeners obviously we all know that milk and cream come from cows but what you know for those who don't know where exactly does heavy cream come from how is it produced Right. So, so cream uh, comes from milk. So there, there are diff, there, there are a bunch of different breeds, uh, and each of those breeds have a have a different butterfat content, which is what it's known sort of is in the industry. Milk has butterfat in it. Uh, a Jersey cow. Most people have seen a brown cow. That's going to have the highest butterfat content. A Holstein, black and white. Uh, will have uh, a lower butterfat content, a brown Swiss. So there are five or six breeds out there. Uh, when you milk a cow, the butterfat comes out along with the milk. And because cream is lighter than milk, it rises to the top. Everyone has heard the expression, the cream rises to the top. Well, literally, that is what happens in milk. Each breed will have a different uh, butterfat content. And generally, whole milk uh, in the United States, uh, we've said that whole milk should have 3.25% butterfat content. Fat-free is as close to zero. 2% is by definition 2% butterfat. What we do at Five Acre Farms is, we've, is that we observe that, well, actually most herds could have a higher butterfat content. And actually, if you focus on the better farms, not having a 3.25%, but rather having closer to 4% butterfat, you not only get a creamier milk, uh, but as it turns out, a tastier milk. And so cream comes from milk. It, it separates itself naturally uh, over, over time by rising, uh, but in, in a processing plant, so milk is is taken out of the cow and then pasteurized, which that's an entirely different conversation. But in the United States, generally, we, we believe that pasteurization is the safest way to go. And then uh, most milk is homogenized, meaning all the milk is blended together with the butter fat. So when you open up your uh, carton or, or jug of milk, the cream isn't sitting on top. Most aficionados prefer cream on top but the general public gets a little spooked when they see pieces of cream floating in their milk, they don't, in their coffee, they don't like that. So most milk is then blended together. Uh, cream in the dairy plant is separated out from uh, the milk. You can have a, a, a cream container and then you can have a milk container right next to it. So with our customers, we sell a few different creams with different fat contents. We have 36%, we have 40%. What percent is five acres? The gold standard is as close to 40 as you can get. You're, you know, it's great that, that Chef's Warehouse is carrying a 40 because overwhelming pull of the market is down to 36. Because in the milk business, most of the money is in the cream. You make ice cream, you make heavy cream, half and half. You make all sorts of things from cream. The less you actually have in the other products, 
the better. Um, but the cream content will vary seasonally also, not so much in the broader industry, but at Five Acre Farms, uh, we really are trying to, to pay attention with what's happening with the herd. And so at different times of the year, the cream content may go up slightly. And since we don't, what's known as standardize, which is we're not producing the exact same product every single time, we're producing the exact same quality product every time, but we let it fluctuate as the animal fluctuates. So generally we're in the 38 to 40, most of the time 40, but we include a range just for accuracy. Nice. Now I know, you know, we're supposed to be talking about cream, but the buttermilk for five acres is so unique in the market. I would just kind of love to hear more about it. Typically, John, as you know, when you see buttermilk in the store, it always says low fat buttermilk, right? They have a full fat buttermilk which a lot of our customers use. There's a, a bakery in Maplewood, New Jersey called the Apple Baker, and she's doing a buttermilk pie with this. And it is it's amazing. Amazing. So can you tell yeah, us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. We've been very uh, happily successful with buttermilk and a whole milk buttermilk. Uh, and so just kind of stepping back, like a quick little thumbnail, uh, a description of buttermilk. Buttermilk is a very useful item in a broader recipe. Uh, and, and, and what I mean by that is, number one, it plays well with others. So it, it, it works with the other ingredients quite well, um, and it enhances a, a, a range of products from baked goods uh, to chicken because the, the acid will tenderize uh, meat. And so it's a very versatile product. And we noticed that you know, traditional buttermilk was the, the whey liquid that was left over from when you make butter. And I realize that's yet another topic. If, you, if we just sort of allow that when you make butter, there's some liquid there, that is, is traditional buttermilk. But it's really as close to water and whey as you can get. And that was often either thrown away or poured in uh, to, 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 you know, to be useful in, in the kitchen. Um, but today's market really has changed that, uh, and the today's market meaning over the last 50 to 75 years, noticing that really the main attribute uh, that people were looking for was the acidity, it, it, however mild, that buttermilk will bring. And uh, at Five Acre Farms, we sort of thought, well, if that's really what the market is looking for, a whole milk product is going to be so much more uh, productive in the kitchen. In fact, with Chef's Warehouse, we did uh, a bunch of buttermilk desserts with Delta Airlines. We get calls from all over the place. It's in about a thousand stores in the East, and, and it's been it's been very successful. But mainly because it's delivering a lot of use to uh, the, the the kitchen. If you're making pancakes, they're fluffier. If you're making muffins, they're richer and and, and tastier. And you know, happily, that's just not me talking. We will win a hundred out of a hundred taste tests and performance tests just on the first try. Buttermilk has been a, a big success. We make it in central New York and it, it starts with the quality of the milk that we start with. And it's, and it goes back to the butterfat content as well. Uh, and it's something that we just don't want to sacrifice. Whereas buttermilk, I think in the broader market is not an item that, that has often garnered, uh, the proper attention and care. Absolutely. Are there any other new items that Five Acres is working on? I know you guys did a chocolate milk um, in the past. Is there anything new coming on? You know, COVID has been, as we both can appreciate, extremely yeah. challenging because uh, introducing new items, generally what we do at Five Acre Farms is we're working with farmers to understand the quality of their milk and what they've got. Then we, we will work with chefs and with retailers to understand what the varying and, and emerging customer needs are and or you know, existing customer needs that are being unmet. And the last year and a half, that channel of information has gone very quiet because a lot of this stuff is face to face. A lot of this stuff has been happening in a kitchen through taste tests and trials. So we have a bunch of ideas that are on pause, but in general, we really think that the market can use a, a higher quality sour cream, which is almost a, almost stemming from a Greek yogurt. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of this just has to do with what 
the fat content, you know, the butter fat content is and the consistency. Um, so we like, you know, we like that idea a lot. It's the fall. So apple cider, which is a seasonal product for us, is, is back. And actually very, you know, you mentioned chocolate milk. Chocolate milk uh, is a tricky product to, to market broadly because it's really something that uh, is enjoyed by kids. But the best, the best tasting stuff from an adult standpoint is not what a kid likes. And so it creates a conundrum mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, is anyone going to really buy the best tasting chocolate milk? And uh, so, you know, we, we, we are continuing to be interested in, in that area as well. Dan, talk to us a little bit about specifically about heavy cream where, you know, I think a lot of the industrial product has a lot of stabilizers and additives in it. Um, and, you know, and that was one of the things where, you know, when we're talking to Hallie Myers, I think that her love of Italian Pana is because it doesn't contain a lot of those additives. What's in the, what's in the heavy cream package when you get it? Cream. If, if you're dealing with, with fresh food, uh, and I understand that preserving and longer term packaged food, you know, has a role in the market. I'm not saying it doesn't, but you, you simply don't need stabilizers in half and half and heavy cream if you can use it in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, if you're willing to shake it, shake the product up yourself, uh, which really takes very little effort. The stabilizers in a recipe uh, change the taste. Uh, you know, despite how much effort has gone in, uh, and, and it's not even necessarily that they're bad ingredients. I know that carrageenan is in a lot of, of recipes and it doesn't really matter to me where, you know, wh whether it's good or bad, it, it's just, it's not, it's an unnecessary add to a, an ingredient that can stand alone. No, we never would, would use a stabilizer. We would really seek to make sure that, you know, we, we have as clean uh, and, and high quality a product as possible, because that's the other thing. A lot of times, uh, stabilizers and preservatives are added to products uh, because their quality is not quite good enough and they need assistance. And that's not universally true, but it's pretty true. Absolutely. And I think when you're making um, ice cream or, you know, adding it cream for a soup, you want it to be in its purest form. You don't want any additives to change that flavor. You want it to taste like the cream. There are a bunch of things that happen with the making of milk products, but specifically cream that are that are really important. They arrive and they show themselves and are appreciated by the best chefs. And it starts with the health of the cow. It may not seem like a big deal, but the the objective measures of how healthy a cow is actually translate very closely to the, subject, uh, the subjective measure of taste. Uh, so a cow that is healthy uh, is one that is treated well at the farm, that is comfortable, uh, that has a good diet, that has a lot of air around it. I mean, there, it's, it's no surprise that cows like to live in upstate New York and Vermont and Wisconsin because they like cool weather. And so uh, when, it, when it gets really hot, they get uncomfortable. And so a barn that has a lot of air running through it, a lot of clean air running through it, is, is going to reflect in the taste of the cream. Uh, a cow that's well-fed and relaxed is going to reflect in the taste of the cream. You know, a stressed cow will produce milk that will, what's known as break. It, it, it will compromise its quality and it shows up in the cream. So we work with farms that put a super premium on healthy, well-fed, comfortable cows. It's just, it sounds like a cliche, but it's, it's true. No, it's it, absolutely it, it, true. Are the cows, um, cows grass-fed? Uh, sometimes, although in the Northeast, grass-fed is a little bit of a red herring because the implication is that they're on pasture all year, and yet we, we know full well in January and February, uh, oftentimes there's snow on the ground, so they're not able to get grass. But a cow is going to eat hay and, and corn, and, and uh, a lot of people also think corn is grain, but really corn is a, is a grass that has a grain in the kernels 
as well. So uh, they're, they're mostly eating a grass diet. And I know that might be a little too technical, but the, the, in, in the Northeast, you, you, you certainly want them outside all year round. Uh, no. No, absolutely. And who are some of the chefs that are using your products right now? Everyone from, you know, we, we, Mama Fuku, which uh, we, we did through Chef's Warehouse and, you know, Jean-Georges and, and Danny Meyer, uh, the, the Union Square Hospitality Group, a lot of his kitchens. That account actually gives us a lot of pride, which we run through Chef's Warehouse, because those chefs uh, and those pastry chefs all have complete autonomy on their purchasing. So if, if we have a lot of them buying uh, independently, you know, we feel really good about that. But also just, you know, your neighborhood coffee shop and kitchen will, will often have us. And, and as things open up again, we're learning about that. I mean, the number of emails that we're getting now about, hey, I'm opening up a, a, you know, a restaurant on, on, on Core Street in Brooklyn. And we're reopening down in the village in Manhattan. And, and, and we'd like to arrange for your product. And out in New Jersey, we're, we're regularly getting uh, calls about that. And so we're, so we're eager to see things restart. Well, we're psyched about that too. Um, you know, Chef's Warehouse, we love working with local farms. We love supporting great causes. And, uh, you know, and, the, and of course, we're talking about farmers and producers that are right in our backyard um, in upstate New York. So we hope for, you know, massive continued success of Five Acre Farm. And, uh, you know, the products speak for themselves. They're just so good. And it's, you know, it's a pleasure to have someone to work with like yourself. Well, thank you very much. And and this is, has been a really excellent partnership. I know the Five Acres is available at a variety of other specialty gourmet markets. Dan, we really appreciate your time today and learning all about Five Acres and your delicious heavy cream. Well, thank you. And also uh, more everyday uh, for New Yorkers uh, and New Jersey, ShopRite and Key Food. Uh, as well as Union Market in Brooklyn. Uh, we think good food really needs to be broadly accessible. And so having having key food as a customer is 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 really good balance to a place like Union Market, which tends to be more on the higher end. Absolutely. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Ingredient Insiders, Where Chefs Talk. Like what you hear? Write us a review and follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.